Welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional. Not a doctor, not a counselor, not a therapist. No, I'm a guy with 750 days of sobriety, and I'm a guy with the gumption to put his story out there. So no, I'm not a professional, but I've got an absolute pro on this episode of 40,000 Steps Radio. Dawn Kepler joins us. She is the coordinator of the Collegiate Recovery Community at Michigan State University. Think about that Big Ten environment. Think about tailgates. Think about the lines at the bar. Well, she, you think she's pushing sand up a hill, but guess what? When she and her team, when they provide peer support, when they make deep connections with students, they are seeing results that the numbers of kids using alcohol on that Big Ten campus are actually going down. Mind blow, right? So I'm so very excited to dig into that with her. Thanks as always for joining us. As I look out the window, it's a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. So let's get it. Hostile environment. That's how our guest Dawn Kepler describes college communities. And she, it's really not hyperbole. I mean, think about safety on campus when it comes to, you know, young women and sexual assaults. It really specifically germane to the topic du jour when it comes to people in recovery. And here's the quick way to fact check that. It's happened again, where a young man at a fraternity, a young pledge, died in a hazing incident where he was forced to drink alcohol until he died. This was at Bowling Green State University where Stone Fultz, all of 20 years old, was forced to drink until he died. Something similar to this happened at Northern Illinois University, which is like a well-struck golf ball away from our house here in DeKalb. Something similar happened at NIU like nine years ago when David Bogenberger uh, died after a hazing incident in which he was forced to drink alcohol and, you know, beyond any reasonable capacity. So folks, these are very straight and short lines, aren't they? Where you can draw a line from student forced to drink alcohol student dies because of excessive amounts of alcohol consumed so these are pretty easy to identify but here's what we don't see is we don't see all the kids who didn't die but whose lives were ruined because they were thrust into the throes of addiction and not just on one night <laughs> at these events during these hazing events, but because of like the ongoing culture at campus communities. I mean, I think back to my college experience at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and you know, I, I look back on my experience and I, I don't really have regrets about how much I drank in college. Yes. I drank way too much in college, but at that time there was a certain amount of like time and place for it. It was only years later that I started, you know, waking up in the morning and feeling like I wanted to vanish, you know, like after a night of heavy drinking that I just, that I wanted to disappear. And I had all those horrible, horrible, bottomless negative emotions. But I mean, in, in college, I mean, my goodness in Wisconsin and not just uh, being a college student, but also working in the sports department, you know, at a newspaper. I, I can't imagine how how hard it would have been to have swam upstream and uh, and tried to get sober during college. So yes, it it really is a hostile environment for kids in recovery. But even apart from the subject of alcoholism, addiction, I mean, what about the young woman at one of these parties who gets raped? What about the sexual assault, the abuse, all the other ugly stuff that plays out as a result of alcohol? Well, 
we have one of those young women on the show now. I mean, now she's about my age, but 20 some years ago, she was sexually assaulted at a graduation party. And I'm so glad that she's still here to talk about it because my goodness, if we want to talk about recovery stories, folks, Dawn Kepler, she was sexually assaulted. She gets sexually assaulted. She literally takes it upon herself to go out and try to get help. And she is shamed for it. She is blamed for it. I mean, come on, man. Now, I mean, given this is 20 some years ago, but I mean, this, this still happens. So, you know, every time that she brought up the G word or the S word during our conversation, I could still hear that exhale because the guilt and the shame is still very real. And this is what, this is what college students, you know, have to deal with. This is what adults like me have to deal with. I mean, how messed up is this? When we decide that we want something more out of life, we are guilted and shamed. So first off, insanely awesome that Dawn is celebrating 21 years of sobriety. I think we can all give her a standing ovation for that. But further, check this out. Here's what's cool. The numbers of alcohol use at Michigan State University are actually on the decline. That's the good stuff, man. That really points to the fact that they're getting some stuff done with the recovery program that she runs. Now, like I said, you know, during my college experience, I wasn't ready to get clean, you know, but what if it were either my volition or if somebody, you know, <laughs> forced me to do it and told me to get help? How would I go about doing that? Well, anybody in that situation right now, I urge you to reach out to my partners at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's gonna run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran and NIU student or unemployed, you're gonna get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. So whether you're a student, whether you're a full-grown, middle-aged human like I am, be sure to get in touch with them if you have even semblance of an inkling that there could be a problem. All right. Well, like I said, the data is very encouraging at Michigan State University, uh, and that has so much to do with the work that Dawn is doing. First and foremost, like I said, we need to give her a round of applause for 21 years of sobriety. And, you know, I told her, kudos to all the work that you're doing in the community, but first and foremost, kudos to loving yourself and for being compassionate with yourself because all the work that she does, it begins with her. So we're here to celebrate her. This is my great conversation with who I now consider a dear, dear friend, Don Kepler. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you and and to talk about the campus recovery community. And one of the first places that my mind goes is I go back to college and I think about like if somebody had come up to me or if I went up to somebody and, and I went to order them a drink and they said, no, I don't drink or I'm sober or I'm in recovery. I might have like run the other way on account of the fact that well, not just that I didn't want to hang out with that person, that I didn't think that they could be fun, but I think that even back then I might have had this like deflection mm. of like knowing that I was drinking way too much. So my mind is blown when I think about this community and how clutch it must be, but also how challenging it has to be to get people the help that they need, especially during a pandemic. Kudos to you folks, but how much of a challenge is that? 
It has been a real challenge, um, particularly in the pandemic, but you definitely hit on some points about the difficulties and barriers that young people, particularly in college, face when they have a substance use disorder or just navigating substance use, period, um, because research has told us that college campuses um, have been described as a hostile environment, right. too poor on recovery. There is a culture around partying and substance use that is really difficult even when the data tells us that's not necessarily the case in some cases. Yes, such as here at MSU, our data has continued to show a decline in substance use for our students at MSU, our general population of students. And so it's hard, though, to combat some of those myths and that culture that keeps getting propagated when you come on campus on a Saturday and they're, all you see is tailgating and alcohol use. And the students you do see out perhaps on a Friday or Saturday night, standing in lines at the bars downtown. Those are the students who are engaging in the alcohol and other drugs, but that doesn't represent the full college population at the same time. And so that's something we talk with our students about and that has been really important for us to talk about within our own collegiate recovery community because our data here at MSU tells us that approximately 30% of students at MSU have not report not having used alcohol or other drugs in the last 30 days. That's a huge number. It's like, it sure is. That, that surprises me. Yeah. So who are those 30% when you think about the kind of the culture, the norm that gets told is particularly in the media, but just when you drive through, you know, downtown East Lansing on a Friday or Saturday night. And so you're not seeing that 30% who are athletes who are at home studying or recovering or traveling for their athletics. And you don't see the students who are at the library. You don't see the students who are having game night with friends or watching a movie or at a coffee shop. Those aren't the students who you see. You see the students who are at the tailgates. You see the students who are in line at the bars. And so it really it can be difficult for that 30% of students to find and connect with other students who, who aren't looking to drink or use substances on a weekend. And that's particularly true for our students in recovery who are a smaller portion but mighty at a campus here the size of MSU. So we our data shows us that approximately 3% of our student population identify as being in recovery. And on a campus our size, that's over 1,500 students. No kidding. That's awesome. I, I know that you said that those numbers are actually improving. I mean, how much do you think that has to do with the work that you're doing and the resources that you provide? I know you can't take a victory lap or anything, but but that's that's got to be a point of pride that you might have something to do with that. We like to think that we're, we're working towards that we're contributing to that here at MSU through our, I work in the health promotion department, prevention, early intervention, and now recovery being our newest initiative here at MSU with it being approximately four-ish years old since we've had more of a formalized collegiate recovery community. And so we we like to think that we're making progress because of all of these initiatives. As I'm sure you know, as an individual in recovery, another individual in recovery, we know that substance use and substance use disorders are a complex issue, mental health issue. There's no one modality that is going to work for everyone. Right. Both on the prevention side, treatment side, and the recovery side. And so that's what makes it so complex and challenging. And at the same time, can be so amazing when you work with individual students and, and help identify their strengths and work with them on those. So it really is, it really, there are so many different challenges for our young adults in recovery, particularly on college campuses. And you also brought up another great point about the pandemic. On top of all of those all those difficulties and barriers that there already exist for students in recovery. I mentioned some of the research. The research also shows that our students in recovery are a marginalized group on campus. It's also a population that's often underserved. And so, and there's also stigma involved and difficulty connecting with services. And also in addition, with the stigma, some of our students, they, they don't even know the word recovery. They don't, they don't even know how to identify a substance use disorder. One of the amazing things in the more general mental health field is the awareness that's been raised around depression and anxiety and how 
we've seen with our students here at MSU how they've been able to identify those and get assistance more than they have in the past. And yet substance use is still lagging. It's still one of those parts of mental health that really isn't, people aren't as comfortable with or aren't as knowledgeable of or don't have the same level of awareness of. And if I can go into the way back machine again, if I go back 20 years to when I was in college, like my only impression of somebody getting clean and sober was all the miserable scenes that I'd seen in movies and on TV of, of, of AA meetings and maybe like driving by like an Alano club and seeing people outside smoking cigarettes. And I, I think that so much of it, like how much of your mission, like you want to provide the resources and the connections, how much is it important to like flip it on its head and rather than talking about addiction, but talking about just how, just how much fun you can have in recovery and how, how fulfilling life is when, when alcohol isn't running interference. That's a great point. And it's something that's really important to our students because at the developmental age of a young adult in college, so much of their focus developmentally is on making connections with others. And so that's, that's really important to development and being able to have fun. And if I don't drink or party or use substances, am I still going to be able to have fun? And so that's a huge part of what we do. And so we try to be as visible as possible with our fun, sober events. We do a, we try to do some larger fun, sober events in the fall and spring semesters that engage the broader campus community as well as the broader recovery community outside of that too, to make sure that people understand that you can go to college and have a real college experience while in recovery, because that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily think of. They think of, okay, if I'm going to go to college, I'm going to have to protect myself. I'll go to campus for class and then get off campus as quickly as possible. And fortunately with collegiate recovery communities, we make that happen with sober tailgates and with sober St. Patrick's Day events where we rent out the whole bowling alley on campus. And it's one of our largest events where we have so many students, even outside of our collegiate recovery community and the broader community who come and have fun on St. Patrick's Day while being sober. One of the biggest challenges, and you alluded to it, is stigma, where we're not just working with the folks in recovery. It's like we have to bring along the rest of society. And, you know, I've heard you talk about uh, having empathy and compassion at events where you, you provide non-alcoholic options and stuff. Like, I don't think anybody wants to feel any like sense of segregation. I mean, some people like, yeah, I take a lot of pride in the fellowship that I'm part of in the recovery community that I'm part of, but man, I also, I also want to be able to, uh, feel integrated with the rest of the world. And, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about how the language that we use matters, the words that we use that matter. So how do we go along bringing along the rest of the world so, so that we're all in it together? Yeah, that's no easy feat. And so the interesting part of substance use and recovery in general is that most people know or have personal experience either through themselves or someone they know or in their family or friend group who has navigated substance use disorder or recovery. And so many people have misperceptions based on what they've seen in their personal experience, and that can be really difficult to overcome. And at the same time, that can be one of our greatest assets that we have because people who've been personally impacted at, by it can also be our greatest allies who may not have been going through a substance use disorder or recovery themselves. However, they recognize the importance of that and they want to help. And so I think that's one of our greatest untapped and starting to tap. I shouldn't say untapped. We really are in the whole field of recovery and substance use field in general are recognizing from other marginalized populations that where we've seen this work happen, where integrating allies into the work we do is so important because in recovery, I'll use the example of our students. So, so many of our students here at MSU and our collegiate recovery community in the beginning of recovery, they very narrowly focus in on their friend groups really sometimes involve only other people in recovery. And so many of them get to a point where they're like, okay, I have to learn how to navigate my recovery with other people. Safely too, without like putting your most prized possession, your sobriety at risk. So that's another one of those negotiations. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's it's not an easy process to navigate. And so kind of uh, paralleling the broader engagement of allies, 
our students have to figure out how do you disclose to people? How do you be vulnerable with something that has for many of us in recovery, myself included, involves so much shame where, um, and guilt. And so it's something that we haven't always felt supported by other people around our substance use disorder and recovery. And so how do you, how do you disclose that to other people? How do you get people to support you? Because you're right, you need to do it safely. And so that's where I think it has been really difficult in the recovery movement to involve allies and to address stigma, as well as with other populations. You see this, for example, with the broader community of people who have disabilities. And we've learned a lot from some of the work that have been done with other populations too. So along those lines, some of the language, which I love that you brought up that we use is person-centered, person-first language. You're not a disabled person. You're a person with, with a developmental disability. Exactly. You're a person first. First and foremost, you're a person. You have, you're so much more than any disability, than any mental health condition, than any substance use disorder. You're so much more. And so making sure we put that person first. When you've talked about this, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is, again, I go back to the AA meeting. And especially like if you're in Boston AA, you're an addict and you're not even a recovering addict in a lot of those meetings. You know, it's, I think that those mandates, I mean, a lot of that is just, it's been ingrained for so long that some of the communities are like that. Yeah, but we talked about it, that there's so many different pathways to recovery. How can somebody navigate that if, if they're at a meeting and something that they're told to do compromises their values or makes them feel uncomfortable? Yeah, that's a tough one. And I, I think we each have to figure that out for ourselves. In regards to language, I would like to point out that we also have great examples from other marginalized populations that have done this work around stigma and raising awareness, where many other groups have taken some of the language that has been very strong, have very strong negative connotations and been stigmatized. And they've taken, they use it themselves, the population themselves, and to take the power back. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's something that can be very powerful. I think it depends on what, how you are viewing your use of it. And so I think that's different for each individual. And I think you find that a lot in the recovery community, as you have alluded to, where Many different people have different definitions even of recovery, use different language when it comes to recovery and substance use disorders. It varies a lot. And so I think for each of us, it, it makes a big difference in how we, if we are an individual with a substance use disorder in recovery ourselves, I think we have to figure out what we identify with personally, then in what context we use that language. And being and how we are intentional in our use of that language and what works best for us. And so when we when we talk to allies here at MSD, we have a recovery ally training. When we talk to allies and help to train them to understand the language piece, we talk about how even if you hear an individual in recovery identify as an addict or an alcoholic, how that's still not language that a person who's an ally should potentially use because of wanting to put the person first and wanting to help fight the stigma. And it feels different in co different contexts Sure, yeah. when you're using the language. And so it's something where I think we in the recovery field and substance use field are really starting to come along and we aren't maybe as far along as in some other areas, like with um, individuals with disabilities, for ex just as an example, and the amazing work that they have done to help combat some of the stigma around having a disability. Yeah, so much of it is just compassion and empathy and consideration of the person with whom you have that relationship. Now, you've alluded to it a few times, and I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the campus community. And I'm so grateful for the one-on-one -on -one interactions that you personally are able to have with people who are at all various stages of recovery, because you yourself are in recovery. You were, what, 14, 15 years old? How, how old were you when, when the problem first arose? Yeah, so I was 16 when I started using alcohol and partying, and I immediately began experiencing blackouts and negative consequences and trauma. And I was very fortunate that I was able to find recovery as 
I view it with gratitude that I was able to find recovery as a young adult, as a 19-year-old, still a teenager. And at the same time, it was very difficult. It was very, I had reached out after experiencing some trauma related to a blackout in my substance use. And I had had a sexual assault and I went to the local health department was one of the examples and tried to get some help and, and have someone who I thought could offer some of that empathy and compassion and help me get some resources. I was met with a lot of shame and made to feel guilty for my actions and how they had contributed to the sexual assault. So for me, I've had multiple examples of this along my journey to find recovery in that I've often been made to feel shame because my substance use has resulted in negative consequences for me and hurting others as well. So I've experienced trauma. I, other people have been hurt along the process. And so it's something that has really made it more challenging. I really struggled to find any kind of assistance. I didn't even know that treatment specific to substance use was even available. It was something that wasn't provided to me as an option. And mental health services were never something that anyone in my family had engaged in. It was not something that I was familiar with. When I first found recovery, it'll be 21 years ago tomorrow is my recovery date. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. When I first found recovery, it was it was something where I felt very alone. I tried to find others who might also be interested in kind of a sober lifestyle. And I had tried some some various different supports. I had trouble finding someone who I, other people who I could relate with who were younger. As I mentioned earlier, developmentally, when you're a young adult, a lot of times, you want to connect with other people who are also young adults, particularly if you're a college student who are going through some of those similar experiences, because being a college student is a pressure cooker kind of situation. It's, there's not a very, it's a high stress situation. It's not, there's not a very uh, routine schedule that you have as you go through a semester things change. Like there are midterms where things get really stressful. There's finals where things get really stressful. There's different areas. It's very up and down kind of roller coaster in your schedule and your stress levels. As a young adult trying to navigate college in recovery, early recovery, I really wanted to find some other people who were also college students going through the unique circumstances that is being a college student where your schedule literally changes every semester, entirely upends sometimes, and and have other people that just kind of could know and talk to me of what I'm going through more than just using substances or not using substances. Like the bigger picture kind of things that I was going through on a day-to-day basis. And so I really struggled to find that group. I never found other students, another student group who were in recovery themselves. I, for my own recovery, I focused a lot on my purpose and that I know a lot of people through substance use and recovery have not been as fortunate as I have to been able to continue in this journey. There are many people we lose through substance use and who are trying to find recovery. And so for me, I really wanted to help other people, prevent other people from experiencing some of the trauma and loss and hardships that I personally had experienced. But it's a long journey for you to get to that place where you can help people, right? Uh, and, and that you can connect people and get them that sense of community and that sort of support that you didn't necessarily have. Yes. And so I looked in many different places for that support. And one of the biggest places that I looked as a college student for that support was other student groups who were interested in helping other people. Cause that's kind of my journey and what helped me maintain recovery is having a purpose in helping prevent others from going through similar experiences with this substance use disorder. Well, that's, that's like the old AA it's, it's a life of service. And that when you, when you do that, it enriches your own spirit and, and, and speaks to your own recovery. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more for me personally, that has been a huge part of my own 
recovery journey. And so, and it continues to be obviously in the work I do with MSU's collegiate recovery community. And so I looked for community and support with other students in groups that are helping groups, groups that want to do mental health work, groups who want to help other individuals who are struggling. And so I joined these groups. Some of one of them in particular I have in mind. It was a very intensive training, 40-hour training. At the end, you had to take a test in order to join the group and be able to offer support to other students. And I went through the whole training. They had announced that they were doing a um, a testing study session at the end. And of course, it was at a bar. And that was my first. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And, so, and I, so that was my first indication that, okay, this unfortunately might not be the group for me, but maybe I could find some individuals in this group. And unfortunately, I never did. All of the social aspects of the group outside of the work, that the great work that this group did, all the social aspects, aspects revolved around partying, alcohol use. And so that was my experience time and time again when I had tried to find a community on campus and, and within the campus community, the student community. And so it was really difficult in that way and kind of had to forge my own path in that sense. And that's why I went on and worked in the substance use prevention side of the continuum in the field for a number of years. And I got so incredibly excited the first time that I heard about collegiate recovery community. It was about 10, approximately 10, a little over 10 years ago when I was working in this field and a presenter was coming in from Texas Tech University, Kitty Harris, and she was doing research. They had created their own collegiate recovery community at their campus. They were doing research and collecting data and helping other campuses to start their own, like providing a model based on the data that they were collecting to start, how to provide effective supports to college students. And I got so incredibly excited. And it's something where I decided this is something I... I never could see myself working in the treatment side of the continuum. And then around that same time, kind of more broadly in the field, not just in collegiate recovery, there was also a movement and a realization that we can't just help people to quit using substances. We have to help people beyond that. It's substance use disorders are a chronic brain disease. It's not something that you get treatment and it's done. This is something that people navigate for the rest of their lives. And recovery is work. It, 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 it is a lot of work, but to me, there's no better paycheck. What we need is we need the community that can, that can kind of show us how to do that work. And then we see others doing the work. So there's kind of that that trench mentality, you know, that, that we're in it together and we're all working together. The collegiate recovery side, it took, it takes a while. So we keep talking about stigma and misunderstandings. And so it's something that is growing. It's something that some campuses have had for literally decades, a very small amount of them have, but most of the campuses that have collegiate recovery have developed just in the 10 years. Here at MSU, I mentioned we've had our kind of formalized collegiate recovery community for approximately four years. And prior to that, we had a registered student organization where we were really fortunate here at MSU that our students took on a strong advocacy role and approached staff who were in the health promotion department before I was ever here and said, hey, we've been looking for these supports on campus and we don't see anything. Is this something you can help us with? And so at the time they were unable to, it wasn't, it's not an overnight thing where you can start all of a sudden providing collegiate recovery supports. But they need to be like canonized for being the ones who took that step and started that conversation. Like, I hope that you guys have named a building after them. I hope we do too. We have not yet. It's definitely <laughs> something to work on. Because our students have been such amazing advocates, these three students in particular who start helped start it all, it's really, we've come, we've come a long ways at MSU in a very, what I consider a very relatively short period of time. So eight years ago, approximately, they came to our staff in health promotion. They started registered student organization. They kept advocating them and other students who joined. And... We're able to get space on a college campus. If you've ever 
been on a college sp campus, you know, space and parking, those are the final frontier. <laughs> it is so difficult to get any space on campus for anything, including parking, but also for a student lounge. And that's one of the th uh, outcomes that had come from the research is how important it is to have a safe space on campus for students in recovery. So they help advocate to get a student recovery lounge on campus. They kept advocating uh, eventually a few years later, they were able to help form a kind of more formalized collegiate recovery community with a support staff person. So one of the students was able to move into that position and help really help build everything that we have at MSU and kind of get that ball rolling on the more formal side of things. And then students kept identifying needs and, and kept the advocacy going. And then approximately three years ago, we also here at MSU were able to get the first on-campus recovery housing in the state of Michigan. It's amazing. It is. And it's all because our students have been really amazing advocates. And so working with our staff to try to get our administration educated on what the needs of our students are and how amazing our students are. If I could brag for a minute, our students in recovery are some of the most successful students at MSU and data across the nation also supports this. But here at MSU, our students, our last survey, 100% of our students had a GPA above 3.0 and 50% had a 3.5 or above. Yeah, who'd have thunk it, right? I mean, that to me and to us, <laughs> that absolutely makes perfect sense because you know, they've got clear minds, clear eyes, they're they're motivated, they don't have like like their brains are actually functioning the way that they ought to because they're not chemically imbalanced and the alcohol isn't running interference. And oh, they're actually getting a good night of sleep too, right? So yes, that that doesn't come as a surprise at all. But you know, that that is amazing to point out how successful they've been. Yeah, with a with appropriate supports in place, our students in recovery are the, some of the most amazing students on college campuses. And you think about it, they're hardworking. Our students, most of our students have jobs while going to college. Some of our students in the collegiate recovery community also participate in other programs to help support their recovery. That takes a lot of time. Recovery. And maintaining your mental health in general takes time and effort, as you said earlier. And so it's something where our students are constantly working. They understand what hard work is. They understand how important it is to work towards their goals, including academic goals. And so they're they're amazing. It's, it's the best group of students, in my opinion. I may be a little biased. Of course. <laughs> I know that the pandemic has presented, you know, numerous challenges, but how about for you with your day-to-day -day operations, like, like your actual role, you're working one-on-one -on -one with students, correct? Yeah. So a lot of the work we do, I work both one-on-one -on -one with students as well as creating peer support opportunities. So a lot of what the collegiate recovery community is about is creating safe and supportive spaces where peers in recovery can come together and support each other. And so we found that, that is one of the most impactful, and research backs us as well, that that's one of the most impactful things, not only in general recovery, but also in collegiate recovery, is to have those opportunities to have that peer support. And so a lot of what I do, one-on-one -on -one individualized recovery planning and coaching with our students. In addition to that, we have, I mentioned sober fun events and activities. We also have our on-campus recovery housing that I mentioned. We do wellness workshops. And we do community service opportunities. So we team building. We have a lot of opportunities for students to give feedback. So I mentioned that a lot of what we do at MSU is really student driven and student informed. And so we also have multiple students who are compensated and have, have positions to allow them to free up time when they might otherwise be working other jobs to be able to get more involved with our collegiate recovery community. And so we have students in those leadership positions helping plan all of our events and activities. Well, it's awesome that it's student-driven. And, and I appreciate that there's the uh, compensation component there um, because I remember eating a lot of ramen and frozen pizza during college. A good healthy diet goes a long way too. But no, the, the, the peer connection is so huge. And uh, like here in DeKalb County, I'm working with the local drug courts to try to develop more of a, a volunteering and mentorship program where, you know, because I was talking with the uh, executive director of the uh, mental health board in the county and she said, you know, it's really troubling how little success counselors have in diversion programs 
in terms of, you know, helping people get help, stay on the straight and narrow. However, when you have that peer support element and there's that been there, done that lived experience, and there's that legit connection, then you see the results. And that's where, like, I know that you're an administrator, so I know that the students are probably most effective, but you yourself, like I said before, it's the street cred, it's the lived experience when you're working one-on-one with some of these students. And I know that that's an opportunity where maybe on the more public scale, you aren't able to share as much of your story, but you can in those one-on-one interactions. And you had alluded to something earlier that I kind of want to double back to. When you suffered that sexual assault, was that like a party in high school or what was happening there? It was. It was actually a graduation party uh, right after I graduated high school. Well, it might have been right before graduation, actually. And so it was right around that time. And it was definitely a high school party. And I, I agree. I think that one of the most important pieces for individuals in recovery is to have people who are going to not shame them, who are going to approach the conversations and the and trying to help from a place of empathy and compassion. Well, you went you went to get help, and you were you were turned away, and you were shamed. The local women's shelter here has like the most amazing ad that I've ever seen on the side of the bus stops. There's this pie chart, and it said, "What is the leading cause of rape?" And there's walking alone. There's what you're wearing and stuff. And at the bottom is in bright red rapists and the entire pie is bright red because that is the leading and only cause of rape. And I love the message that that drives home, that it is not your fault, but you didn't have that. No. Those first couple of years of sobriety. I mean, what what was it like walking around and carrying that with you? I was, I suffered from depression. I had suicidal thoughts. I had a a plan. In fact, the only thing kind of keeping me going was my purpose and wanting to help other people. And if I wasn't able to do that, it it would have been really hard for me to continue in my recovery and, and just continue period. It was, it was really difficult because of the shame and not getting the support and help that I needed. I think my recovery was set way back. I was focused more on the using, not using side of things and less on getting the mental health help that I needed. Recovery and mental health are lifelong pathways. And so it's something where I feel like I was really behind. Well, the world was behind too. Yes, yes, absolutely. A couple of decades ago when I first found recovery, we didn't have as easy access to resources online. You didn't have videos and information and resources in the same way that you do now where you can look things up. And so it was definitely something. And you didn't have collegiate recovery communities, obviously. You didn't have drug courts, DUI courts. You didn't have those supports where you have things available to when people need it, you're there. Because that's such an important opportunity because you really have to strike when the iron's hot with an individual when they're ready, when they're starting to contemplate, maybe this is an issue because it is something that, that is so complex and it is something that is a chronic brain disease. And there's no, there's no medication, no one medication, I should say. There's definitely medication assisted recovery. And at the same time, there's not one medication that will help everyone. There's not something where this is it, you do this and you're better. You're a whole person. So taking one pill for one problem is not going to just help you across the board in all things. We're very fortunate now that we have research that's helped us to understand more and to make that process more effective, including the medication-assisted recovery, including all these new pathways to recovery that weren't available. They weren't available 20 years ago. Dharma recovery, smart recovery. There are so many new opportunities for recovery and to define what your recovery is and what helps you in your personal recovery and how that's different from person to person. 
I love me some smart recovery. I have to think that that's clutch in the college campus setting. Isn't it, it is. Yes. Uh, here at MSU, or I shouldn't say MSU, but in the Lansing area, there haven't been as many. And that's something that we've worked with some of the local treatment and recovery groups to get some smart recovery groups into the Lansing area. So we feel really fortunate that we now have a couple of smart recovery groups when there weren't any just a few years ago. In these one-on-one interactions with, with students where you're able to share a little bit more of your story, like you said yourself, you know, with the fallout from the sexual assault, like you had a plan. You, you had shared with me recently that you had pills in your backpack in, in case it came to that. When you're in these one-on-one interactions, and I've talked a lot about on the podcast how it was actually something of a relief for me that I learned that my addiction was very much a product of my mental health struggles. And part of my struggles, you know, it's tough to tell with trauma, but I know some of it stemmed from when I was molested when I was a kid. So when I was able to get my interventions in place and, and treat my mental illness, things got so much better. So people must come to you from very broken places sometimes as the result of trauma. How much are you able to like connect with them with your story? And what's it like when you see somebody cry or confide in you and finally recognize that they are not in it alone? That's a great question. And and it really is one of those opportunities where I feel so grateful to have that connection with other people who are struggling and who are navigating and who are continuing to move forward. And I view that as such a huge step because many other people like myself, when I was in early recovery and have experienced trauma, have a hard time trusting others. And so when an individual, when a student is able to share some of their story with me, share some of their story, and we have support, peer support groups here on campus through our collegiate recovery community, when they're able to do that, it really, I view that as such a huge step for that student. And I, I get really, it it can be heartbreaking to hear people's story because there's so many difficult and heartbreaking stories involved with substance use disorders. And at the same time, when someone is sharing that, it's helping them to take steps forward. It's helping them to be able to trust others and reach out for help. And so that that's huge for me. And I, I, I try to be grateful for that anytime that I am able to have that kind of a connection with a student, with someone as particularly someone new to recovery who is going through some of those struggles. I should add the caveat that uh, collegiate recovery communities are not clinical programs. We at MSU, as most campuses, do not have treatment services available. That's kind of a higher level of need that we refer off campus to professionals who have that higher level of care available for students. And, and clients in general. And so that's something where we really, as I mentioned, try to help support kind of that peer-to-peer support piece. And so helping students get the referrals they need. We also do have a counselor on staff in health promotion who does work specifically with students who are navigating substances, who are navigating substance use disorders and recovery as well. And so we are really fortunate to have that. And she's able to help students get an assessment and do that higher level of care, connect them with resources for that higher level of care. And so it's really is nice to have services across the continuum from the prevention side to the early intervention, counseling. And like I mentioned, we don't have those detox treatment services, but we do have the, on the other side, the recovery side. So we can work with some of our community partners and some of the great treatment resources out there and then help students be able to continue their academic goals. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for me, one of the hardest things about getting getting uh, clean for me was I went to the emergency room, I talked to a social worker, and I was given information about treatment. Now you talk about how you have your partners in place. It was terrifying because I had to leave there in the middle of the night, get up the next day and make the phone call. Like the onus was still on me. And here's where I'm lucky is that I had the supports in place. You know, m- my wife stood behind me. She did not leave my side. And she was there with me in the morning when I placed the phone call to Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work 
and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. So this is me as as a 39-year-old man with all sorts of supports in place. Certainly a different environment for a 20, 21, 22-year-old kid on a college campus. In your environment, you have those partners in place. So will you like be in the room while they make the phone call? Will you get that process in motion for them? Because that's clutch. Yes, and that's been one of the hardest things about the pandemic is not having those opportunities to do the warm handoffs. So we have walked students over to counseling and psychiatric services. I've had students in my office where we complete the form to register them with the resource center for persons with disabilities. And so has my, um, my coworker I mentioned who is a counselor as well. And so we try to do what we call kind of the warm handoff and recognizing how important it is and being there for students when they really need it. We also try to, as soon as possible, if students are willing, getting them connected with other students so that they can talk to students. And, and something that I might not be able to do in my role, like drive a student to a, a support meeting, they might need more support meetings than we ha- currently have offered on campus. And so other students will help drive the student, take them with them to the support meetings. And so we try to help get them as much support as we possibly can uh, on our college campus. And that's really been a hardship since the start of the pandemic where you don't have that same opportunity to do the warm handoff in the same way. It's been it's been definitely a barrier that's been more difficult to navigate. But now we're getting there, right? Uh, you know, pe- folks are getting vaccinated. And I know that the young crowd, it's a tough crowd to get vaccinated. And that's, that's a huge stumbling block right now. But you got to be feeling a little bit energized right now, knowing that we're getting back to those places where those warm handoffs can happen. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. And that's made a huge difference for our collegiate recovery community. And as soon as we were able to, we moved to a hybrid format. So since last fall, we actually last summer, we, as we've been able to, we have met both allowing students to join in person and virtually because we had students who were out of state still, we've had who did the learn from home, who were not on campus or in the East Lansing community, but we still had many students, we had we still had on campus recovery housing. So we still had many students who came to campus who were here in the community. So we, whenever the guidelines, the health and safety guidelines allowed us to, we would meet in person masks on six feet apart. In the beginning, we would meet outside when we were able to. Michigan weather obviously can make that difficult at times. (laughs) And so whenever we were able to do events or activities, we would do those outside. We were able to go kayaking last fall as a fall welcome. We've done more campus walks than we've ever done. And we have been able to try to figure out, we've taken painting supplies outdoors and done art. Together as a group, our, our registered student organization, Students Organization for All Recovery, they go by SOAR for short. I mentioned that the, our, the registered student organization was, com- was formed first before the collegiate recovery community. They also continue to help support students in more of an informal way, giving uh, something fun to do on other nights when the CRC doesn't have something as well. And so we really tried to get creative and that was one of the biggest things our students asked for. And like I said, we try to be as student-centered and informed and driven as possible. And so we, before many other services were offered in a, other than our health, our health, clinical health services, we went to a hybrid format and have been doing that for, for almost a year now, actually. Well, that's terrific. And I think that there's becoming more and more of an appetite uh, for for help, really, and for seeking help. 
I'd like to think that has to do with the fact that we're having more of these conversations. One thing that I actually find really like heartening is that you're seeing a lot of major breweries that are starting to brew non-alcoholic brews, which I know can be a slippery slope. And there's a cautionary tale with that because for some folks it's, you know, there are some trigger warnings there, but we're kind of seeing the world catch up with us a little bit and become a little bit more compassionate. And I'm choosing to be optimistic about that. So when I hear that your numbers are improving on campus and the data is is improving, I think we can take a moment and uh, and appreciate that and celebrate that. Do, do you take time to do that? Absolutely. I think it's something where we have a lot of hope for returning to a new normal in the fall, being able to have more of those opportunities for students to connect in that peer-to-peer support way, having more opportunities for those warm handoffs. We also, you brought up a great point with non-alcoholic, sober, fun, sober options. And so here in, not in East Lansing, but in the Lansing area, a sober bar recently opened up this year. And so we've been so excited to that there are more opportunities like that, where people recognize that it's something that people want. People want that opportunity to be able to go out and watch a sports game at a sports sober bar and have wings and well and how cool would it be if somebody who's sober brings a buddy of theirs along to one of these sober bars and that person who doesn't necessarily you know think that they've got a problem they go they have the time of their life we get that integration and they're like whoa i met a girl last night and i remember everything that we talked about how weird is that and they realize just how terrific it is and, and how fun life is without alcohol running interference. Oh, absolutely. I just 100% agree. And it's something our students in long-term recovery, longer-term recovery talk to our students who are newer to recovery all about and how they never thought that they could continue to have fun long-term and how in the beginning you're really planting the seed and how much you get out of that, you're able to harvest and grow and really appreciate the outcomes of it the longer you get into recovery. Not that it necessarily is easy or or anything like that. However, just how amazing it can be and if you continue to work at it. And so it really is something that it's it's magical to see students who've been working at it for a longer period of time be able to say that and to appreciate and have the gratitude for all that they have now and share that with a student who might not be there yet, who might still be struggling and might be newer to recovery. Yeah. Well, well, kudos to you and all that you folks do in order to make that possible. I cannot thank you enough for joining me. I cannot ring the cowbell enough for your 21 years. And thank you so much, Christopher. I love the work you're doing, raising awareness, helping educate and inform other people about what substance use disorder looks like, what recovery looks like, and how amazing it can be. So thank you for all the work you are doing and for bringing us on and having us be able to share the information about collegiate recovery, which really isn't as well known either, even in the recovery community. So we really appreciate the work you're doing as well. Well, thank you so much. It's it's a mutual admiration society. All right, we'll keep up the great work and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. All right, bye. All right, so we are a cool 10 years away from my daughters being accepted to a university and flying from the nest and going to college. And I'm banking on the indications from the data at Michigan State University that the conversations that we're having, the work that people like Dawn are doing, that they are actually promoting a safe environment for kids to not consume alcohol and to continue to live fulfilling, awesome lives. That's that's what happens. And who knows, maybe we can bring along the rest of society and maybe they can realize that, wait a second, alcohol isn't what makes me fun. I'm what makes me fun. Hopefully, <laughs> by the time the girls you know, fly from the nest, the world is even more uh, accepting, welcoming, and compassionate. All right. As always, thank you so much to our guest, Dawn Kepler, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much to everybody out there who listens. Thank you in advance for giving the podcast a review and a rating. When you do that, it increases its visibility on platforms so more people are hearing it, which helps us grow this community. Until we meet up again, be sure to catch me on Instagram 
It's at 40,000 underscore steps every Tuesday and Thursday morning. I hop on there for an IGTV talk. We occasionally have some interviews as well. Don't look for me this Thursday. I'm going to be celebrating 10 years of happy, 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 happy marriage with my wife, Kayla. We are going up to the UP. We are going to see a whole bunch of waterfalls and everything that I'm doing here starts with her. A quick little aside, a message of love to my wife who I adore and who I can't wait to escape with. All right, gang, as always, thank you so much for being here. And if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space, right here, we are always coming together. Love you and we'll talk to you soon.